You are now listening to Macrodose. Hello and welcome to Macrodose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. On today's episode, following the devastating events in Israel and Palestine, we'll take a look at, first, the wider geopolitical and economic forces behind the conflict in the Middle East. Second and finally, we'll look further afield to consider the potential wider economic fallout. I've tried to keep the show oriented on political economy analysis rather than opinion as far as possible. I think it's important and worthwhile to try and locate what we're seeing in front of us into its economic context. But with this in mind, I want to say up front today that my thoughts are with those people suffering right now. We're recording this in the morning after the Al-Aqsa Baptist Hospital was destroyed, seemingly in an airstrike, killing at least 500, including patients and those who had fled to the hospital for safety. Israel had been quick to blame Islamic Jihad for the attack, but this has been widely dismissed. As the initial BBC report said, the scale of the destruction is far beyond anything any of the Palestinian groups could have achieved and 51 healthcare facilities have already been hit in Gaza over the last 10 days, including the Al-Aqsa hospital itself, which was struck previously, just a few days ago. The horror of this, coming on top of the exceptional destruction we've already seen, with more than one in a thousand residents of Gaza reported killed, has caused widespread revulsion across the region and beyond. US President Joe Biden's planned meetings with Jordan and the Palestinian Authority have already been cancelled, while Saudi Arabia has condemned Israel's attack. Israel's planned ground invasion may now hang in the balance, as international opinion, not only in the Middle East, has shifted sharply against its government and the brutal attack it has launched. This conflict must not be allowed to escalate further. So, time for our first story this week, the global economic context of the Palestine-Israel conflict. On the morning of Saturday the 7th of October, Hamas launched a surprise attack on Israel, initially with a barrage of around 3,000 rockets, followed by a dramatic breach of the fence surrounding Gaza by land and air. These attacks targeted some military infrastructure and personnel, but the majority of the 1,400 casualties were civilians. In addition to reports of atrocities committed, Hamas took an estimated 200 hostages into Gaza. Gaza itself has been under Israeli blockade since 2006 and Palestinian territories illegally occupied since 1967, but deliberate attacks on civilians cannot be justified. Israel has responded with a full-scale siege of the territory, an indiscriminate aerial bombardment combined with shutting off water, fuel, electricity and food to all 2 million people in Gaza, almost half of whom are under 18 years old. Israel has, in addition, ordered the forced displacement of over one million Gazans from the north to the south of the Strip. The United Nations Commissioner for Human Rights has warned that this may constitute a war crime, and at least 2,600 Gazans are reported to have been killed so far. At the time of writing, Israel's threatened ground invasion has yet to be launched, with 100,000 reservists massed on the edges of the Gaza Strip but it is clear that an incursion would dramatically worsen the already dreadful situation for refugees, putting enormous pressure on Egypt in particular, and potentially leading to a further response from Hezbollah to Israel's north. Israel has already threatened the destruction of Lebanon should this happen. The difference in relative military strength here is overwhelming. 
Hamas may have been able to launch a murderous surprise attack, but it is Israel that has the vast, modern army and total superiority in terms of conventional warfare. At the time of writing, Israel has dropped 6,000 bombs on Gaza. For comparison, in the fight against ISIS over 2014-19, the US and its allies dropped no more than 5,000 bombs a month across the whole of Syria, a figure I've taken from the military journalist Wesley Morgan. Beyond the immediate human catastrophe, we've seen a wider geopolitical and economic fallout. Oil prices have already shot up to above $90 a barrel, reflecting a belief amongst oil traders that what is currently an appallingly brutal but geographically contained dispute could spiral into a wider regional conflict. Despite US Secretary of State Antony Blinken's rush around the capital cities of the Gulf over the last week, the conflict has effectively broken the Biden administration's strategy for the Middle East. A policy effectively extended from the Trump era, which sought to, quote, normalise relations between the Gulf states and Israel by building on the 2020 Abraham Accords and persuading Saudi Arabia and Israel to establish diplomatic trade relations. A deal between its two most important regional allies would, the US hoped, consolidate its power in the region and squeeze out the growing influence of China. The People's Republic is becoming increasingly active across the Middle East, with China and Saudi signing a strategic partnership agreement at the end of last year, and China increasingly supplying the Gulf states with advanced technology, like 5G infrastructure. Saudi has begun buying some military equipment from China too, although the bulk of its arms purchases come from its historic supporter, the United States. The longer-term hope for normalisation was that this would allow the US to wind down its various diplomatic and military commitments to a part of the world that was becoming, in Washington's eyes, less critical than China itself and the so-called wider Indo-Pacific. I think it would be useful to put this current conflict into the context of a changing global economic picture that we're now living in. For decades now, the Middle East has been the resource tap of the world economy. With the twin price shocks of the 1970s created by OPEC, we had an extraordinary demonstration of just how vital oil is to global capitalism. But decarbonisation has already begun to shift this centre of gravity. Instead of a major region critical because of its ability to supply a single dominant commodity, we are moving towards a world where a variety of fundamental raw materials matter from scattered locations across the globe. Copper from Chile, lithium from Bolivia, cobalt from Congo. Obviously, there is still a long way to travel here. The last 18 months has shown us that disruptions to fossil fuel supplies can still have an extraordinary impact. Threats now by OPEC+, now including Russia, to reduce oil production, have also driven up global energy prices already over the last year. But I think it's underappreciated that, thanks to the fracking boom, the US has gone from decades as an oil and gas importer to becoming a major exporter of fossil fuels. That means that the world's largest economy is no longer dependent on the Middle East for an essential resource. Whilst with China looking to leap beyond the fossil fuel economy and become the world leader in decarbonisation, its concerns naturally spread much wider to Africa and South America, where the Belt and Road Initiative has been installing the infrastructure of mineral and natural resource exploitation for the last decade. This is a shift measured not in days, but in decades. It works far more slowly than the horrible drama of the last week, but the direction of travel is clear, and the Middle Eastern states are responding to it, seeking to diversify their economies and looking, as Saudi and UAE have in particular, for new allies. Attempts at normalisation between Saudi and Israel have to be seen in this context of the winding down of US economic interests in the region and attempts to consolidate a stable geopolitical position. 
The last 10 days have almost certainly brought this process grinding to a halt. Reports now say that Saudi has decided to, quote, pause its negotiations with Israel over normalization, which was not denied in an interview with the US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. The question is how long for and whether this pause becomes permanent. The immediate response to this conflict from both the US and the EU has been full support for Israel. Recent days have seen this rebalance somewhat as the extent of the devastation in Gaza has become clearer and warnings have grown about the legality of Israel's actions. Protests for Palestine across the world have been the largest for at least a decade. With its economic ties in the region changing and its geopolitical strategy under severe strain, the pressure is mounting on the US to attempt some restraint on its closest Middle Eastern ally. Whilst US economic aid to Israel had fallen to nothing by the late 2000s, its military aid to Israel still consistently runs at 3 to $4 billion a year, or about 12 to 15% of Israel's military budget, and double the amounts given to any other recipient. These pressures for restraint may be playing out. It's clear from news reports that Antony Blinken's mammoth nine-hour meeting with Israel's war cabinet was largely aimed at cautioning restraint and easing the all-out blockade. Whilst there are new reports that the planned ground invasion may not be the full-scale assault once feared, it is at this point that international opinion can come to matter decisively, and as the very large demonstrations and the desire for restraint expressed by other major powers like China suggest, this will not grant Israel's government the free hand it's been wishing for. For a second story today, I wanted to stick to this same topic and look further afield for the wider economic fallout. Stepping back a little from the immediate conflict, there are three elements that start to matter for the world economy. The first is the consequences of this moment for the worsening debt crisis across the global south. As we've covered before in this podcast, the years since the global financial crisis of 2008 saw an incredible growth of borrowing across the global south as the richer countries of the global north attempted to mitigate the damage by clawing back on what they had borrowed. But after a second round of deep crisis induced by the pandemic, with massive spending and economic stagnation, many of those debts in the global south have become unsustainable. One of the worst affected countries is Egypt. Egypt is one of the largest grain and fuel importers in the world, and has been absolutely hammered by both the Ukraine war and ongoing environmental instability. To buy increasingly expensive essential imports, Egypt has been running bigger and bigger foreign currency debts, even as its own currency has fallen dramatically in value. Debt repayments by the government this year will take up 56% of all of its government spending, and with credit rating agencies downgrading its government bonds, the risk of a disorderly default, in other words, the country becoming unable to meet its foreign debt obligations, is becoming very real. Reuters estimates that, after Ukraine, Egypt is the country in the world most at risk of a debt crisis. So reports over the weekend that the US was dangling the prospect of some debt relief in return for Egypt taking perhaps up to 100,000 Palestinian refugees shouldn't come as any surprise. This is a fraction of the internally displaced persons in Gaza, which the UN now estimate to be around 1 million people. It's pretty common for official creditors to try and use leverage in this way against their debtors, although more usually these, quote, conditionalities will be attached to demands for economic reform, like privatisation, as in the heavily indebted poor countries initiative, which led structural adjustment by the IMF and the World Bank in the 1990s and 2000s. 
Egypt has struck such a deal with the US before. The US cancelled $10 billion of the country's debt in return for its participation in the first Gulf War back in 1991. This mooted Egypt debt deal is much closer in its cynical spirit to the EU-Libya migrant deal signed in 2017, through which EU countries pay for the Libyan Coast Guard to intercept and detain refugees fleeing across the Mediterranean. Amnesty International has condemned the hellish conditions refugees are forced to return to and called for an end to the deal. But one of the emerging features of the post-pandemic world is the willingness of Western governments to break the free market rules of the game and politicise financial transactions and financial institutions, as we saw, for example, in the efforts to sanction the Russian central bank and close the dollar trading system to Russia. The Egypt deal may or may not emerge, but with 16 countries today already in debt distress, facing exceptionally high interest rates and many more dangerously close to the precipice, we can expect similar political debt relief deals to be signed in the future. Second, and perhaps more obviously, there is the impact on commodity prices, and oil and gas prices in particular. What most of us have seen over the last year is an easing of the rate of inflation as the big surge in oil and especially natural gas prices caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine have washed through the system. Prices are still much higher than they were before the war, but they are no longer typically rising so fast. Coming into this winter, for instance, UK household energy debt is at a five-year high, with 3.2 million people owing money to their supplier. That's up 11% on the last year. This is a pretty direct result of very high prices for household energy over the last 18 months, even with the additional government support. Israel is not a major oil or gas exporter, with recent major gas field discoveries directed towards domestic consumption. But the rising prices of oil and natural gas over the last week, with prices for future deliveries of natural gas in Europe rising 14%, reflect the fears of market traders that the current war will spill over into the rest of the Middle East, impacting on production elsewhere. Iran has threatened in the past to close the Strait of Hormuz, the narrow strip of sea between Iran and Oman, through which about 40% of the world's oil exports have to travel. Closing this to shipping would radically and dramatically impact on global oil supplies and therefore prices, although at present this remains only a hypothetical discussion. Iran and Saudi Arabia's foreign ministers held their first telephone discussion for seven years last week, with both sides indicating that they wanted to limit any regional spillover from the conflict. More generally, what the surge in prices shows us is another indication that a world with deep instability and conflicts, where the international order is being shaken up, is likely to be one where inflation is much higher than we have been used to. Now, conflict and instability can work out all right for some. Shell's share price has hit an all-time high in the last week, whilst BP and other major oil companies have seen their share prices rise even as stock markets generally have fallen. And obviously, shares in arms manufacturers have shot up. The Financial Times notes that shares in Lockheed, RTX, Northrop Grunman and General Dynamics, four of the Pentagon's big contractors, have risen sharply since Hamas's attack. Third, and finally, there is the general economic backdrop. This was made very clear at the annual joint meeting of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank in Marrakesh last week, with the IMF downgrading its forecast for global economic growth and its chief economist saying the world economy was, quote, limping along, not sprinting. Debt distress amongst poor countries is worsening, with nine countries already having defaulted in the last few years. The effects of climate change and environmental decay are becoming more apparent, as The Guardian's Larry Elliott noted in his write-up of the talks. 
Yet the IMF is still clinging to a belief that a so-called soft landing from the inflation surge of the last two years will be possible in the next year, and that the chances of this soft landing being achieved are even increasing. There's a certain amount of unreality around these sorts of predictions, which stands in stark contrast to the rocky landing that other, more global south-focused international institutions like the UN Conference on Trade and Development are warning about. The world economy is, as the IMF elsewhere admits, fragile, and its financial institutions are particularly weak, with the fund estimating that nearly a third of global banks are at risk of collapse if higher inflation and low growth continue. Shocks like that in the Middle East carry the risk of tipping the economy into deeper crisis, and as the shocks multiply, the risk of a weak financial system magnifying them into a broader economic crisis grows with them. With all that in mind, my final thoughts today are with the victims in Palestine and Israel. This conflict must not be allowed to escalate further, but the basic equation remains the same. There will be no security for Israel without peace, and no peace without justice for Palestine.